Welcome to the Product Boss Podcast, where we help product-based businesses grow their sales and improve their strategies. Hey, everyone. I want to introduce you to my co-host and biz bestie, Mina Kunlo-Sita, an Amazon guru that has built a multi-six-figure product-based business. In introducing the other half of the product boss, Jacqueline Snyder, she has helped launch and grow over 500 fashion apparel and accessory brands, even one of her own. And together, we share our inventory of secret weapons that will help you dig deep and do the work it takes. Are you ready? Let's build together. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Product Boss Podcast. I'm your host, Jacqueline Snyder, with my talented co-host, Mina Kunlo-Sitep. Hey, Mina. Hey, Jacqueline. So I'm so excited today because we are huge fans of this guy. Um, (laughs) We kind of talk about you often on the podcast. Um, Awesome. (laughs) And if you want to watch this, we are actually going to have a video of it. So we will put links in the show notes. But I want to introduce you to our guest today, who's Mike Michalowicz. Mike Michalowicz is an entrepreneur that has founded two multi-million dollar companies. He's a keynote speaker and ultimately the author of what I would call an entrepreneur's financial Bible, Profit First, and Surge the Pumpkin Plan, the toilet paper entrepreneur, and now his newest book, Clockwork. Welcome to the product boss, Mike. Jacqueline, Mina, thank you so much for having me. We're so excited to have you. This is just a joy. So thank you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, no, listen, the joy is all mine. Like yeah. I get to talk about my stuff. Like This is amazing. <laughs> And you live in New Jersey. So and we were I just, live in Jersey. Jersey. I'm a Jersey girl now. So that's what we were talking about pre-show. Um, have you have you had a Taylor ham, egg, and cheese is the question yet? No, I'm a little bit like also a bad vegan. <laughs> so, oh, you're a vegan. Okay. So that, that won't work so well. No. Um, um, but I do, I am trying to figure out how to say where I live. So on the highway, they say, what exit are you? Right. And you have to say yeah. your exit. Yeah. And I'm from LA where you call it the 101, the 10, the 405. So I was like, I'm off the 280. And they're like, there's no the. Off the 280. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> right. So, okay. So Mike, you're the owner of multi-million dollar businesses and, um, also the author of five books and you've garnered thousands of fans, like loyal followers from around the world. Two of and, us right here. Yeah, right here. <laughs> Oh, at least two, yeah. <laughs> and you're a family man. You're a dad. You talk about your daughter. Um, I think we listened to a podcast that you just, you got a horse recently. She did. Yeah. She, and she, see her life stream, my daughter's life stream was to own a horse one day. She's now 20 years old and she got a horse, but the best part is she negotiated it with her school. She goes to Rutgers University. Yeah. She negotiated where the school bought the horse for her. Effective oh, for wow. her, effectively. So, uh, boardroom, everything's covered. She just, it's her horse. You must be so proud because oh, that is like, yeah. that's like the key making of like an entrepreneur, like really working it and figuring oh, out how to do it. She works it. She works So, tell us um, for people who don't know you, um, tell us about where you started, where your entrepreneurial journey began. Yeah. So, uh, entrepreneur my entire adult life, right out of college, I uh, became an entrepreneur. Um, it was actually a drunken bet. Um, I started working for a small computer store. I couldn't get a job out of school, a, a, you know, a traditional job. So I worked at a computer store. I was that greasy kid that, you know, you, you buy a computer and I try to push like a dot matrix printer on you to make my $5 commission. Mm-hmm. And um, one night went out for drinks with one of the guys that worked there and, you know, I had a few pops and we're like, oh, you know, I could start my own business, man. I'm, I'm smarter. And the owner just sits back in the back room smoking cigars and counting money. And uh, 
it's all my sweat and effort. So I'm going to start my own computer business, which I did. Uh, very quickly found out that uh, the, the owner does not sit in the back room smoking cigars and counting money. Uh, he, he's probably taking Xanax. He's under such stress um, in making this business run. And uh, so I became an entrepreneur because of, because of drunkenness. That's not my advice, by the way. It's just the reality. <laughs> and, uh, and then uh, from that point forward, uh, fear became a ma- massive motivator. Uh, fear ultimately became confidence. And then confidence became aspiration. And I was able to sell two of my companies, uh, one to private equity, another one to a Fortune 500. My second company was in computer crime investigation. We were one of the lead investigators in the Enron trial that, you know, that everyone knows about and other major cases. And, uh, and then I, I run my third uh, multi-million dollar company today. Uh, but first and foremost, I'm an author. And I think the one little last component, all that stuff is like kind of the resume bullet points. That stuff doesn't matter. I think the one thing that really matters in my life and why I can be of service to others is I also lost all my money. So I had a company in between, which I was an angel investor, but I had no right to be in that space. I was full of arrogance, thinking I knew everything about entrepreneurship. I was packed with ignorance, and arrogance and ignorance are a deadly combination. I started 10 companies. They all failed, lost all my money. I actually call myself now the angel of death because I was such a bad investor. That was the big awakening that I know very little bit, bit about entrepreneurship. I need to learn it, master it, and I also wanted to step into what I feel is my calling was to be an author. So is that period where I said, I'm going to become an author and, uh, and really s- learn stuff for myself and serve the world. It just so happens I've started other businesses since because when you're an author and your books start getting popularity, more and more people are interested in working with you. So some really nice opportunities present themselves that I'm partnered in and own businesses with. Yeah, that's wonderful. That was one of the things that I think really gravitates a lot of entrepreneurs to you is that you started from ground zero, you know, yeah. and and then basically got up there and then went back to ground zero. <laughs> oh yeah, below ground zero. In <laughs> Hades, yeah. It's always about reinventing yourself. You know, I think, I think entrepreneurs ultimately can reinvent themselves and come up with the next idea, take what they've learned, do it I again. Think, I think the, the shame, and, and I actually, as I was just sharing my bio there, I was doing it. Many of us default to the success story. Our, you know, our resume is all those bullet points of successes. But the reality of our entrepreneurial journey is there's far more failure. And some of it is, is you know, a travesty, like a real devastating stuff. Um, but I think it's in these valleys that we can, we can see the height of success and how really extraordinary that is. Many entrepreneurs never achieve that. So uh, I, I now put more value in the dark period and challenges I went through. Now, coincidentally, I don't, I don't look at that and say, oh, I want to go through another dark period in my life and struggle like crazy. Um, I don't wish that upon anybody, but it really, I hope it ripped out my ego and I no longer feel this bravado to say, look how successful and great I am. Because I'm not, I'm just, I'm just going through life's experience. I just got some different vantage points and other people that I want to share. And I think that's my real story and the real story of many entrepreneurs. So you were saying um, that you one of your businesses was a manufacturing company. Could you tell yeah. us a little bit about that? So that one was uh, when I started the angel investing business. Uh, of all the companies I started, I started 10, one sustained. It was a small manufacturer in St. Louis, Missouri. It exists today still. It's called Hedgehog Leather Works. And I became a partner in the business. And what we did was we manufactured leather products. So sheaths for knives, that was our most common product. We catered to what's called the survival market. Uh, these are survivalist people that see the end of the world coming and they want to have tools and equipment to 
protect themselves. And so we made sheaths for them. Uh, it was a big eye opener, you know, manufacturing in the US, controlling all the raw materials and variables that you face and producing what I really believe is a, a superior product. Um, it was an extraordinary experience, uh, extraordinary learning. And uh, yeah, I'm just very proud of that business. So you, so you don't necessarily bring the death to it because that is a, <laughs> no, that that's a product the one. business that survived. <laughs> No, I, I, listen, I started a business, uh, it was called uh, Romance to the Door or something, but the idea was we were making these meals. It was like Blue Apron, but for romantic events like birthdays or Valentine's Day, and we would ship this package to the customer, and it had like the candle in there for the table, the whole setting, the food, so you could make it up. And uh, great ideas, but, but ahead of their time, this was like eight years or nine years before Blue Apron came out. And we just couldn't figure out like the logistics and making this happen and awareness and the business just went right down and uh, had a lot of these great ideas. The other thing was, you know, to run a leather manufacturing business, a food supply business, another one was a fitness business, a jewelry manufacturing business. They were all like, none of them complemented each other. And if the businesses don't complement, I was being pulled in a thousand different directions at any given time. That was also like a grand mistake. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it fits, you know, that 80-20 rule. So you, eight businesses failed. I'm sure there is probably, you know, one and a half in there. That, yeah, but, you know, okay. Yeah. So here's the other part. Like, it, yes, eight businesses failed. One makes it or nine failed. One makes it. That kind of mm-hmm. fits the numbers. I lost every penny I made. So I became a self-made millionaire in my early 30s when I sold my second company, that computer crime investigation business full of arrogance and like, look at how great I am. I just blowing money, like making it rain with cash, <laughs> like a total tool. I was a total tool. Just thinking I was so great. And, um, with my money, I, I started all these businesses. I was, as they were declining, I was actually spending more money to give them runway mm-hmm. and, um, blew all my money. Uh, and I share this in my books. It, I'll never forget the day. It was February 14th, which is Valentine's day of 2008. I mean, this is only 10 years ago or not 11 years ago now. I, uh, I got a call from my accountant and he said, Mike, you should declare bankruptcy. I lost every penny. I was broke. And I had to go home to my wife, my children, my daughter, and tell them, uh, you're, we're going to lose our house, which we did. We lost our cars and, and a lot of our possessions because I never declared bankruptcy, but we had to right-size ourselves and adjust to our medium, uh, our very mediocre amount of income. And we bought our rusty beat up Dodge Durango, a 1997 Durango. So it was already 10 years old as a rust bucket. And that was our ride. It was devastating, not just the financial aspect, but just, it was devastating because I was no longer within how I defined myself to be. I wasn't living up to the standard I set for myself. So my ego went through a major bruising. I actually went through depression. Not that I share this you know, gleefully, but I think it's very important. Many entrepreneurs struggle with depression. Mm -hmm. I went through two years of depression, became a drink. I'm not really a drinker, became a drinker. And um, it was just a very dark period of my life, but it also became this awareness that, that uh, there's a better way. And, and then ironically, I read a book called profit first. Um, It's not all about the money. It's, it's, it's about the balance. Profit just happens to be a great supporter of it. And that's why I believe we need to treat it like gold. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So much of our identity is in our entrepreneur journey. journey. Yeah. So it's just like when that mindset hits and then you're just like, oh, I didn't live up to that. It's, it's really hard to shift back into what your idea of success is. And then, you know? and then we fake it. Yeah. Right? 
So I, I believe my life's purpose is to eradicate entrepreneurial poverty. And what I define as entrepreneurial poverty is the day you both started your businesses, uh, anyone watching, the day we start a business, the people who are not entrepreneurs think, oh my gosh, you own a business now? You're a millionaire. <laughs> you know, and you don't even work. All you do is sit at the beach drinking margaritas. But here's the reality. The day you start your business, you take on this financial burden that most entrepreneurs struggle with for the rest of their lives. So we have no money. We're not millionaires. Uh, we're actually putting money into it that we don't even have. So this disparity between what's perceived and the reality is extraordinary. But we as entrepreneurs feel that we have to carry on that mythology. So we drive around, we, we pound our chest, we, uh, we buy the Mercedes when we could never even afford it in the first place just to show this air of success. And that's that gap so I call entrepreneurial poverty. And I've devoted now my life through my books, through teaching, is to help entrepreneurs get to the reality of what's perceived. I believe we all should be wealthy. I think we should be joyful and happy. Uh, I think we should have time for balance to do what we want and we feel called to do. So that's what I'm trying to fix, that disparity. I think I think that works. I mean, I follow Profit First Model. I have all the accounts. I have accounts in other places. <laughs> so many accounts. So many. And then you get bookkeepers that are like, why so many accounts? I'm like, well, oh. have you read Profit First? Um, yeah. So, but it, it works. So like there are fluctuations, you know, especially with product-based businesses. If you're sort of, um, you're having to pay out a lot, things are net 60 with getting money paid back, that sort of thing. There is just this fluctuation. So having money but in other places, and like you said, paying yourself. Because what I realized at some point that I think my brother pointed out to me, because he's a money guy, he goes, you know, you could get a part-time job at like anywhere and make more money than what you're doing right now. And you're awake all night and stressed yeah. and have this burden of like thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars for employees and all that. And so that I'm actually in the last year, my business is different. I don't actually have a product business anymore, but the profit first model, for example, and making sure, because we do, we have that burden. We have so much more of a burden as entrepreneurs. It yes. comes home with us versus when you go to, you have a job, a career, you get to go leave and someone else is worrying about keeping the lights on. I think, you know, what your brother said, that is the devastating truth. Most mm -hmm. entrepreneurs would make more money if they simply got a job. At the same time, that is the knife to the chest. I mean, I remember when I was at my rock bottom moment, when we had no money, my wife coming to me and said, Mike, it's time. You have to get a job. And it was like this, this knife going into my soul and just digging around. It was so painful because entrepreneurship is control. Like we can do what we want to do, that we actually have control over our own destiny. Working for someone else is that you lose that control. It vanishes. And I think that's what we love the most, that we have total control over our degree of success. So I, I, I get it and it's truthful. But yeah. the beautiful thing is, is we also have the opportunity to make money and these simple systems, profit first being one, there's, there's other systems from, from other authors too that are amazing. If we simply leverage these simple systems, we can make so much more progress without having to change much about what we do. We can just put guardrails around ourselves and channel ourselves to higher degrees of success. And that's yeah. really what clockwork is about, right? It's not really being productive. It's being effective. You yeah, know, well, that's right. Mm -hmm. So um, what I found, and I'm actually, I just got um, hired by my publisher to write my next book. So yeah. this is kind of an early reveal, but I found there is like this Maslow of hierarchy of needs for business. Just what Maslow says is that there's a base need for all human beings. It's physiology. That meaning, you know, we need food, water, 
oxygen to survive. And if those base needs aren't met, nothing else matters. Like, you know, hanging out with my friends doesn't matter if I have no oxygen. I'm going to gasp for air. So, and it goes up for these different levels, the highest level being self-actualization. Well, I found in business, we also have these levels. The base is sales. Like if an organization has no sales coming in, that's the oxygen for a business and we start gasping for it. The next level up is profit. Profit brings about, to your point, uh, was, uh, was the sustainability. Like we don't have to worry about, I think it was Jacqueline who said that, you don't have to worry about uh, making that next sale immediately. So it brings about some sensibility. And then Mina, to your point, the next level up is time. And time is, it's most entrepreneurs think that if we want to get more of our business, we need to pursue greater productivity. The problem with productivity is this. It is necessary. I'm not poo-pooing productivity, but it's not the ultimate solution. Because when productivity says we have this much time, and if, for people watching video, I'm just showing a distance between my hands. And if we, if we become more productive, productive, we can do the same amount of work, but in less time. So we actually press down the amount of work. But the inherent problem is this. It now may, it frees up a gap of time. I've, I've compressed down more. I'm getting more done, which means I also have a little more time available to take on more work. So the leader, the entrepreneur takes on more work. We pack it down through productivity. We take on more work. And we literally become impacted with work. So, uh, and then the problem, of course, is one thing goes awry. One, maybe you, you all can relate to this, one mess up during the day and the entire day is off because there's no extra time. Everything is packed down to the minute. That's what productivity does. In clockwork, I explored uh, the most successful businesses and found that they pursue organizational efficiency. And what organizational efficiency is where you choreograph all the resources you have, your, your employees, but it's also your software and technology, your vendors, even your clients. You, you see how they can work collectively and you orchestrate them collectively to achieve the results and the outcomes you want for your business. The analogy is almost like you're, you're playing chess as opposed to being one of the pawns on the board. Mm -hmm. And there's a quote that you have that, and this is just, I'm sure it resonates for everyone, but you say, you need to stop doing everything. You need to streamline your business so it can run itself. So ultimately you want our businesses to be well-oiled machines. Yeah, exactly. A definition of a true business is a business that runs independently of the entrepreneur, the owner of the business. And it's funny, offline we're talking about, I myself, I live the, the books I write, Tomorrow, literally tomorrow, I'm leaving for the next uh, four consecutive weeks. My assistant is disconnecting my email. She's changing the passwords on it. I'm offline. And the reason isn't so much so that I can enjoy a vacation, which I will between me and you. <laughs> like, that's going to happen. Uh, we are starting off with my ties tomorrow morning. But Amazing. the real reason is so that the business can run itself, so that my team uh, is promoted to making the decisions that perhaps they were relying on me in the past or I was even encouraging them to ask. They have to do it on their own. It will prove that the systems are working. And when I come back, I don't expect something flawless. I expect problems to happen. But those problems that happen are the things that I need to work on so that next time I go away for four weeks, they don't happen again. That's our role as an entrepreneur is to be the creator of systems. And the only way to test systems is actually to extract yourself from the business and stop being a superhero swooping in and fixing things. So true. Yeah. There was that four steps, right? The doing, the deciding, delegating. I can't remember all of it, it's but I, yeah, I pulled yeah. out a, something that you said that totally shook me. And that is 
in, in so many words that true delegation is not delegating tasks. It's delegating the outcomes. Yes. And we all want to make those decisions as business owners decide, here's your task and here's, I'll make the decisions for you. But it's really, you should be delegating the outcomes and that's the hard part. So I believe we fall victim, victim's not the right word, but uh, many of us fall uh, victim to what I call the superhero complex. Uh, (laughs) Because here's what happens. Superman and Wonder Woman come in and they save the day. There's that super villain that they're fighting and the police force is unable to take care of it. Superman swoops in, fights Lex Luthor. But if you think about it, there's two things happening. First of all, he is disabling the the police force from <laughs> achieving the skills to defend themselves. He, you know, the police force is dependent upon them. Everyone's like, please, Wonder Woman, please save us again. The other problem is the wake of destruction they leave behind them. You know, Superman like destroys the entire city and says, oh, sorry about that. You know, I got rid of Lex Luthor. Fix the city for billions and billions of dollars. You know, Superman, stay on kryptonite and let us figure out how to fix our business. Wonder Woman, go back to Paradise Island. We got this. You know, teach us, but let us get this. As an entrepreneur, we got to get out of that superhero syndrome. And it, but the thing is, it feeds our ego. We, fix, we save that client that was going to leave us, and we save them, and we're like, yeah, I did it. Or that one employee that was threatening to leave or something, we, we save that situation. We're like, look, I'm the superhero. But we really need to empower our team to manage all those elements. The, the four Ds you talked about, doing all the way up to designing, most entrepreneurs are in the doing phase, means they do the work that supports the business, which means they're carrying the business on their back. We need to scale up to the highest level D, which is designing. And designing is where we're choreographing the resources we have to achieve the outcomes we want. We're not actively doing it. The business is running on its own. We're simply controlling the dials to get the most results as efficiently as possible without any of our effort. And one, one last thing, a business that can run without the owner is the most valuable business. If you ever look to sell a company, and I've had the blessing now of doing this twice, when the businesses were dependent upon me, the valuations dropped. Who wants to buy a business that if the owner decides to take a day off, starts to suffer? People that buy businesses want turnkey businesses, a business where if you don't show up, the business continues to grow. So if you actually ever want to sell your business, you have to do this. I love that. So, okay. So just to go over your D's really fast. It's the four D's running the clockwork business. It's doing, deciding, delegating, and designing. Entrepreneurs need to do less and design more, which ultimately designing is strategy perhaps even. So in talking about a product-based business, they're starting out at that doing phase. A lot of them might be makers. Making the product themselves, working online. Yeah. Or they've invented the product. They have a manufacturer contractor that they're working with. So I think when you do a product business, sometimes it is easier to maybe sometimes pull yourself out of it because if the product is set up and you've got the manufacturing, but if you're dealing with sales, customer service, managing your contract, all, yeah. all of it, you're doing it still. And so I think, and I don't know what you would say to this, but coming up with, starting to also document the systems of what they're doing. So because what you're saying is you get to leave for four weeks because ultimately you now have a team that knows all the parts. Yeah, keep it going, and so I think I think as they're doing it, because that's the biggest thing I think we're going to get questions about. How does a single solopreneur, it's a product-based business, get from being the doer to being able to level up? Yeah, so I got the strategy, and the, the irony is, it's not through traditional documentation like SOPs. So I studied, well, I ended up being hundreds of different businesses, but we uh, narrowed it down to about twenty businesses that I document in the book. What I found is. 
SOPs were a standard from the past that worked, but they failed to work anymore. An SOP, standard operating procedure, is where you do something, you document it, and you give it to someone else. The problem is, um, first of all, it takes a lot of time to create it, and the technologies around it often change faster. In fact, when I was writing the book, I originally started to roll out SOPs at our own business here. As an author, uh, one component is we are involved in a lot of shipments. We have two people involved in our little shipping department here. Well, I was doing the shipping originally, and you know, here's how you pack a box. Here's how you go onto the UPS site and do all this different stuff. I gave it to our first employee. Her name was Jackie. I said, Jackie, here's the process. Here's the SOP. It was this 12-page, beautiful pictures, everything. Two minutes later, she comes back and says, um, I went to step four, and I don't know if you know this, but UPS changed the website. It's not the same anymore. And I pulled out my hair. I was like, are you kidding me? I spent <laughs> three months writing this, and UPS updates her website? The whole, half the document is no longer relevant. So documents, SOPs become irrelevant quicker than ever now. But the second thing is consumption. For Jackie to spend you know, hours or a long period of time going step by step, it's so meticulous. We have short attention spans. The better way is what's called capturing. And capturing is the new form of SOPs. It's actually recording the process as you're doing it. So screen capture, if you're doing something on a computer, audio capture or video capture, you can do it with your, your smartphone. So now when I do that shipment of packages, you have a smartphone, I'm explaining to it as I'm doing a real shipment, so I'm actually getting work done, explaining how it works. Now Jackie just watches the video and she can replicate it. And then the final step is once Jackie is doing this process, following the video, it's very simple, she then creates another video explaining it to the next person that we'll hire in the future. And the reason is we may never hire someone else. She may continue to do it forever. But the best student in every room is the teacher. I know Jackie's mastered the process when she can effectively teach the process. So after she's been doing it for a while, she teaches it with the additional thing of, of, or additional direction of finding better ways to improve the process. So she'll create a new training video with her own enhancements. And now that she's taught it, she's the best student and she takes ownership over it and it's now her process. I love that. And that's something that we, like we use Loom also. Yeah, so I love Loom. Loom. So I will put that in the show notes too, but we are teaching a lot in our, um, beautiful, our masterminds and on our Facebook groups. And so we like to take them through. So Mina will even show them how to select packaging or this is how to the back end of your Shopify site. So that's just a really great way to love capture it. it. And video is just really strong now. I love it, Jacqueline. Yeah. Oh, so <laughs> I get the approval. Uh (laughs) I think that when you're a product-based solopreneur, it's easier to think of uh, instead of hiring or managing all these people, it's more like creating partnerships, like what you were talking about for manufacturers, right? You're in a way you're delegating to them because you're saying, here's what I want and they control the outcome, you know? You can delegate to your clients, which kind of sounds weird, like give them work. Some mm-hmm. clients love it. Actually, many of us do. It used to be when you wanted to order something, you have to pick up the phone. The <laughs> order taker says, tell me your phone number, tell me your address, and they collect this information. Now, we just fill out a form on the web. We're actually doing that work. They don't need an order taker to do that anymore. And we prefer to do it because we know it's going to be accurate. Um, there's a little enhanced degree of privacy. So, you may be surprised, but you can actually delegate a substantial amount of work to your clients. Yeah, I love that. Um, and it's, it's basically the conversion, right? That's right. Uh, <laughs> um, so I wanted to point out something that you had said about how um, the parent-child thing. It's, you know, how 
we say this all the time. Our businesses feel like our children. I have two kids. I have two two businesses actually. Yeah. But I loved what you were saying about it. that's not actually the case. It's more like could you awesome. get picked up on that? <laughs> so uh, yeah. So the parent child uh, analogy I call <laughs> because let me explain what the analogy is. We as entrepreneurs feel that we are the parent of a business that we gave life to. We started it, right? Therefore, it's our child. We are now feeding it and nurturing it and protecting it with the intention of it to grow. At some point, it will have its own legs. It'll be an adult business and it'll give back to us. The reality in execution is that business nurtures and feeds off us for the lifetime of the business. And uh, if it ever gets legs on its own, it really comes back to us. It really is rewarding. I believe the better analogy is not parent-child, but conjoined twins. Because the reality is you start a business and you are sharing some vital stuff, vital organs, you share a set of legs, uh, heart. Like, you know, we are connected like this. As the business goes, so do we. And as we go, so does the business. If you are having a bad day in your personal life, the business is having a bad day. That's the reality. It also means the separation isn't, you're not waiting for one day the business to walk off on its own into the sunset and, and send you a big check. Now what you realize is the separation is a very surgical process. We have to separate you very carefully, just like you do with conjoined twins. It's very surgical, very methodical, and you separate over time. Once you achieve the separation, now they are two independent entities. The business can run on its own. But the nice thing is we'll always share the same soul. So the, the, the soulfulness you put into the business will continue on into perpetuity, but now the business has its own strength. So look at, look at it as a conjoined twin process and don't just expect one day to rip yourself out. That will kill both you and the business. Surgically and slowly separate yourself. Yeah, I love that so much. Um, there's this point that you said about the soul and the heart where like if you're the face of the business, you're the heart. So a lot of times you won't be able to separate, but when you're the soul, your product, if you're a product-based business, could actually be the heart, right? Exactly. You know, yeah. one, one example is uh, Bert's Bees. I had the privilege of interviewing Bert uh, before he passed. <laughs> he's real? Hey, that's, oh, he, oh, yeah, he is real. Uh, he's re real and he's extremely eccentric. Um, he's, sadly, he's passed away years ago. But before he passed away, true story, to interview him, he doesn't have a cell phone. Um, he uh, does not have a phone at his house. The only way to call him is at the general store uh, when he's there. And us usually he's at the general store on Tuesdays between 10 and 11 a.m. So you call this general store. I think he was in Vermont or New York State. And uh, you call and say, hey, is Bert around? And they say, hey, Bert, you got a call. <laughs> it's absolutely true. Well, I had the privilege of, of tracking down Bert, uh, spoke with him, and he was the soul of the business. Everyone knows Bert's bees and everyone knows the concept of this, this natural thing. Bert is a beekeeper. He was a beekeeper, and uh, he was passionate about his bees uh, and, and being natural. Um, he was the soul of the business. He absolutely wasn't the heart. I would argue, actually, he was probably not a good entrepreneur or businessman in the traditional sense, um, but he was an extraordinary one because in the soulful sense, he, he brought a soul to this business that we hadn't seen before. So you can be the soul and not the heart. It is a choice. You have the right to be the heart, but the second that you fail, the entire entity fails because you're the heart after all. Yeah, I love that. And that's a bit of a struggle because I know you've brought up, you know, like Tony Robbins or Marie Forleo. Yeah. You know, kind of they were choosing to be the heart. Mm -hmm. and, and so the hard part for our, our listeners sometimes is like the social media thing, right? Everyone's like, do stories, get on video. And oftentimes they never wanted to be the face 
of their brand. They wanted their product to be the face of their brand. So yeah, yeah. Bert had his drawing, but we didn't know this story about Bert. He just was the one who ensured that even his lifestyle, the guy didn't have a phone, you know, it was yeah. natural. It was old school. So I think that's a big thing that people are really challenged with right now. It's like kind of pushing, they're trying to push people to be faces of their brand. Um, but not necessarily want to be, they do want to stay in the soul side of it and let their product, I guess, exist as the heart. Yeah, it's a choice. It's a choice. Now in the very beginning stages, you have to be the heart and the legs and everything, quite frankly, because when we start our business, often we're a business of one or just a few. So there's a massive dependency on us. That's why I consider the surgical process. If we become too reliant on ourselves in doing a certain facet of the business. We are not separating ourselves. We're actually kind of freezing ourselves in that capacity and the business becomes more dependent upon us. So it's a very, very uh, specific and surgical process, the separation, and it, it takes time. Yeah. And I think with the soul, it's kind of like any other soul where you become the voice, right? Your product is the heart. You become the voice behind the soul and you have those, the devil on your shoulder and the angel, and they're saying, do this, do this, do this or whatever. Yeah. So you kind of have to decide, you know, what your voice is going to be. And I think that that's the thing is, is yeah. deciding that. Yeah. And uh, you can be the voice, you know, obviously uh, in practice, like the actual physical voice, or you can be the message. And mm -hmm. uh, that's what I'm trying to do with my own business. So right now I'm still, while I'm removing myself from the business, um, I also realize I still have intentionally put a dependency you know, on myself. I write the books. And uh, for the next book to come out, I have to write it, which means there's still a dependence upon me. And if I pass away or something happens, the brand stops. So I have to make a hard decision now. And, and for now, I'm deciding to stay in the business. But this is a decision I'm making. I could start a For Dummies series, the, the entrepreneur's equivalent, and have other authors writing the books and control the messaging. So I could do that, but I'm not ready for that. Um, but I do have some things positioned. So my life's purpose is to eradicate entrepreneurial poverty. That's the core messaging. I at least in position that if I do make that election, I can finally remove myself from the business entirely, but keep the soul of eradicating entrepreneurial poverty there. Yeah. So what you're saying, I mean, and this is, we have some listeners and actually clients that are authors um, or they publish magazines. So you are a product-based business ultimately right, right oh, yeah. now. Um, you're dealing with shipping, you're dealing with, uh, you know, you sell yeah, on housing, raw materials. Yeah. Yeah. So, and you are the maker because the information, it doesn't mean that you eventually have to sit down and type all the words, you know, you can have, JK Rowling does not write all of the things anymore. Like Pottermore, her whole thing, yeah. like JK Rowling has someone else writing it in her essence, Yep. but you're a product-based business. So, um, I guess, would you mind speaking a little bit more on that? Like maybe how you're using clockwork and, and some of the things that you teach within your, your product business and like use in the different platforms that you're selling to and cause you yeah, still yeah. have to so, do a yeah. lot. So the essence of it, and we talked about this off air, is every product-based business, actually every business has a singular activity that's the most important activity in the business. And I call it the QBR. It stands for Queen B Roll. I derived this from studying business efficiency. Uh, I looked at playset manufacturers to uh, pizza shops and everything in between and discovered that the most efficient of all organizations is actually not human-based. It's insect-based. It's a beehive very efficient use of energy and they're able to scale, you know, grow a beehive extremely quickly. And I found there's a singular activity in a beehive and this is true in every business that the beehive is hinging its success 
survivability on and, and therefore thriveability. And for them, it's the production of eggs. The production of eggs is so important to a beehive because bees die very quickly. So you always need to be producing eggs. If egg production is ignored, uh, the hive will, serve, will die very quickly. So all the bees care first and foremost about production of eggs. Then they go, go do their other jobs. The analogy into business, this isn't really a manufacturer, but I'll bring it back to manufacturing. FedEx, and I use that brand because everyone knows FedEx. FedEx's product or service is to deliver packages. Every business has a promise, and this is the key we need to get to. What's, what's your big promise to your customer, your singular most important promise? FedEx promises to deliver packages on time. And um, right now, of all times of the year, this is when there's the most demand because we're recording this during the winter holidays. Well, when we look at the big promise they make, we peel back the onion just one layer and say, what's the one most critical activity that makes that promise reality? And for FedEx, it's the logistics. You know, the, the movement of packages ensures that packages can be delivered on time. Now, FedEx could say, you know what, for the next month or next week, let's, let's not worry about customer service. We're not even going to answer the phones. Let's just make sure we deliver packages on time. If FedEx does that, they may get some bad PR and some customers may be upset, but the essence of the business will continue to run and will continue to do business with FedEx because they're delivering packages on time. But if FedEx says, you know what, for the next week, let's just, let's just not worry about delivering packages. Let's have great customer service. Let's be super friendly. FedEx will go out of business because I would depend on FedEx to deliver my packages on time and now they're ignoring that. Well, in our business, we have to figure out what's the one biggest promise we're making to our customers. As a creating a product of books, I promise to deliver complex concepts in a very simple way. That's my promise. I peel back the onion and say, what's the one core activity that makes that the reality? And it's the writing of books that are very actionable. So, Writing books is my QBR, Queen B role, the most critical activity in my business. There's tons of other stuff going on in, in our business here. Uh, shipping books, calling the manufacturer to make sure it's printed, the, the printing presses, uh, to making sure stock is maintained, customer service and all this stuff. All that stuff is important, but nothing trumps the necessity to write amazing books. That's the essence of it. And if I write amazing books, but we have a problem with printing and things are delayed and, and, and or something happens, I will still come out ahead because I wrote amazing books. If I write shitty books, but we deliver them on time and stuff, I will lose all my readers. So in our manufacturing business, figure out that core element that everything is hinging on. There's another book that I haven't written called The Goal. And if you're a manufacturer or you outsource your manufacturing, but you create your own products, you, I would argue you must read the book called The Goal by Eli Goldratt. And it's the concept of the theory of constraints. Same idea. What's that? Those things that if it's not being addressed, your entire business is being compromised. I call it the QBR. Eli Goldratt called it the theory of constraints or TOC. We need to identify the biggest constraint in our business and make sure it's humming along. If it does, the entire business gets elevated. Yeah. So a good template while I was listening to you, which is so completely brilliant, by the way, is if you're a product, what is your singular activity? Then flip it. So yours is the books, right? Your singular activity yeah. is writing the books. It doesn't necessarily have to be you. You are not the queen bee. That's the queen bee that's role. Right. Right. And then what's your promise? Eradicating um, entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial poverty. poverty. And then um, the flip side to think about it is what are your customers depending on you for? So what do your customers depend on you for? The transformation. Yeah, they, they, they depend on, right. So my customers, mm -hmm. in my case, depend on me for 
complex concepts in business mm-hmm. to be made very simple and actionable. Right. So my, yeah, I'm delivering that. And uh, my, the books have to do that. My mission, my great aspiration is to eradicate entrepreneurial poverty. But at an individual level, when I serve a customer, they don't care about eradicating entrepreneurial poverty. They care about their poverty, but they don't uh-huh. care about that global. So that's my global mission. They care that they get something that within minutes or hours that they have an impact on their business and their business is moving forward. If I fail to deliver on that one thing, nothing else matters. Yep. Because they are depending on you for it. Right. (laughs) And I, and I love that. And I like that. And thank you so much for walking us through that because I think sometimes unraveling how successful businesses have concepted their product or, and their mission. So we have an episode, I think on mission, vision, and values for your business. And that's the the big idea. And then we're getting down to the products that are ensuring that that happens. And so this is some work, I guess, for our listeners to really think about this, like listen to what Mike has said and then what you can do with your business about your product. What is, how do you define that? Just bring it back to a, a real, not a real, I mean, books are products, but a real product. When we had that, when I had that sheath company, our big promise was that your sheath would be made like a tank. That was actually the word we used, like a tank, meaning this thing was basically invincible. And everything would focus on that. That when, uh, you know, when we had design enhancements and stuff, yeah, we could make stuff that looks cooler or looks better. But the question was always, are we delivering a tank? And if we're not delivering a tank, we're not delivering our promise. These are people who are in the survival market. When Armageddon hits, they want stuff that is in, effectively invincible. That's what we're trying to create. And sometimes we got off, off base. We're like, oh, we can add this cool little feature and this little bell and whistle, but it wasn't a tank anymore and customers would notice. So you have to be true to that big promise you're making to your customers at all costs. And even though you may not look... I mean, certain other elements may be compromised. We didn't have the sexiest looking product. The fact it was a tank won business over and over again. Yeah. I love and, that. And plus, what a niche, right? People who oh, are expecting Armageddon. But such oh, a yeah, market. So many people too. <laughs> but get into it. Like if you guys are thinking about what product to do, I read this whole article on all the uh, NorCal, like where the uh, Google, where is it? What do they call them? Silicon Valley people (laughs) with all the money. They are paying so much money right now for these like underground bunkers that are going to survive for whatever because of this survivalist thing. And so there is money there to be spent and it's super, super niche. And that's what you're saying. Like you guys niche down and it was for somebody who took it so far one way. A little tiny promise delivered. And it's not to everybody. It's to these people, but they're going to spend the money for it. I read an article about, so I play guitar and uh, I read an article about a guitar manufacturer. I think, I think it was Gibson, but now I don't recall. So don't quote the brand, but I, I think what the leader of that company did was fascinating. This company, we'll just say it was Gibson, uh, sales were dropping and dropping. Now Gibson, many guitars too, are known for its, its sound, the, the, the sound quality it produces. Some guitars are known just for the outrageous designs, but Gibson for its sound quality. The sales were dropping because they were starting to uh, outsourced to inferior manufacturers that didn't really care, care about sound. They were the Gibson brand, after all. They were a famous brand. And sales were dropping. The new CEO came in, called the entire plant in, the manufacturing plant, um, where they were assembling all these parts they had manufactured overseas, brought them all together. So there was like 500 or 1,000 people in this room. He takes their nicest guitar that just came off the line and says, everyone, see this guitar we just made? And starts smashing it against the ground. He starts saying, "This is we're making. We're known for making music, not for for cheapness. We got to get back to making extraordinary quality." And subsequently, Gibson over time has turned around extraordinarily well because they got back to that promise they're making. 
never compromise the promise and the one activity behind it, um, which is called the QBR, is the most important activity to support that delivery. Yeah, amazing. This is like, whoa. I know. I think it was Gibson. Now it could have been Fender, though. That's the yeah. But a guitar <laughs> company that promised one thing and wasn't delivering on yeah. it. Right. And how cool is that CEO smashing that guitar? <laughs> cool. <laughs> one chance. Yeah, and, and I love the visceralness of that. I can just see the line workers who just, I mean, these guitars, they sell for thousands of dollars. They're polished and finished. He took the highest, most preeminent guitar and said, this is the, the gasp from everyone. But also, the, you know, the, the seriousness about it. I think that's a great visceral uh, implementation of commitment to quality or commitment to what your promise is. Absolutely. So we like to end our interviews with some fun questions. Are you ready to start yeah, those? Sure. They're so easy. <laughs> These so- other ones were not fun at all. <laughs> no, not fun. These are like really, you know, no, but thank These you. That was, ones. this is great because oftentimes so much of the information coming out to our listeners and just the information out there is not so specific to products. So I really appreciate that you're able to oh, it's my joy. turn that for them, it's like, aha, it's this aha moment. Okay. Thank you, Oprah. <laughs> okay. So jumping into the fun questions. So it's just rapid fire, answer them at will. So what is your coffee order? Order meaning, oh, oh. Like what would you order when you go get coffee? Oh, that's so funny. Like, so I actually never order coffee. Now I do okay. drink coffee. Okay. And now I have a new- <laughs> Yeah, somebody else do it. <laughs> so we have a Keurig. No, 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 no. We have a Keurig. So I, I just use the Keurig. Uh, the, now the thing is, the funny thing is that we just landed a coffee sponsor. It's eight o'clock coffee. So oh. I'm going all eight o'clock coffee now. Great. Um, this is the first time that they're going to have to pay for that one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're so we really going like, to need a pass as well. Vats <laughs> of eight o'clock coffee coming to our office. So it's That's always amazing. eight o'clock coffee. I will never, never not drink eight o'clock coffee. Decaf though. Always decaf. But, okay, oh. Decaf. Good to know. Okay. So what is the favorite thing on your desk? Probably my, my um, Alexa uh, or Echo. Oh, I can't even know what they call it. They call it. Oh. The dots. And you yeah. turned her on. <laughs> it just it just fired up. You probably can't hear it because because I said yeah. its name. It's speaking now. Well, yeah. it is going to turn on everybody else's that's listening to this podcast. Exactly, oh. Alexa. <laughs> Alexa, I love doing that. We've done we did that, that so many times because you can play our podcast on there. We're so we were teaching them how to do that. We do that too. So on my own podcast, at the end we say, Alexa, play the Profit First podcast, <laughs> so that people Brilliant. get their machines kicked off. Hey, I do have a quick insert question uh, that I was curious about because your books are so good, but your speaking is so good. So your mode of communication, was it always one or the other? Like wh- how did you find your strength in one or the other? So uh, writing books is a labor of love. Speaking is a love. So okay. uh, I actually like public speaking the most, but I also realized that books are the greatest impact. So it, it clockwork literally took me six years to write. And uh, Profit First took me four um, my next book that comes out next year, I've already been working on for three years. And it's not like writing all the time. It's conceptualizing and so forth. But I'm not naturally a good writer, but I can achieve good writing if I stick with it. So Clockwork has been rewritten. I went through it, well, the full first manuscript I threw out the window, even though that was so painful to do. I went through it probably four times before it started really nailing it. And then my editor took it and took it to another level. Okay. Yeah. Great. And we talk about that a lot too, like what's easiest for us, like speaking, uh-huh. video, and then writing. Well, I love public speaking though. Yeah. Um, and, and just to point that out, because I asked you also, but all your all of your books, are they all available in audio form? Yeah. Oh, everything's on audio. I read my own books. I actually yeah. even go into tangential. So I'll stop reading the book and say, hey, we got right now, me and you, while I'm doing this recording, we got to talk about something. And I'll share a new story or a new insight or a reason I wrote something. 
Yeah, it's very much like sort of listening to you on a podcast. So I, I've listened. Yeah. I prefer yeah. to listen to my books than read. So profit first. All me too. To I'm the same. I love listening mm-hmm. to books. And listening to you is just it's fun versus I'm listening to a parenting one and not so fun. <laughs> read by the authors. <laughs> Jacqueline, you complete me. I just want to. As my kids do. Um, okay, jumping back in. Um, so finish this sentence. When I pick up my phone, I... Uh, answer it. Okay. So somebody's still calling you on it. Yeah, yeah. People still call me on my phone. It's like the general, Bert, you got a call. Yeah, like, did I answer that wrong? I People say, check Instagram, check my email. Oh, oh, oh. no, you know, no. I, don't, I have an Instagram account. I don't even use it. I go on Facebook and stuff. But when I pick up my phone, the vast majority of time, well, two things. I'm a college sports fanatic for my alma mater. So anything related to my college, I'm always looking at the scores and, and like always disappointed. Even if they win something, I'm disappointed. So I'm looking at sports scores or I'm answering the phone. Okay, great. Okay, so how about this one? You wish you knew how to? Sing. Because uh, and I may actually take singing lessons because I play guitar, but a guitar without singing is like pretty freaking boring. So Jacqueline's like, like a Broadway oh, singer. Was- that was great guitar. It's singing is a real good talent that gets people engaged because then they sing along. I, yeah. I, I have a party at my house and I'll whip out, you know, I'll start playing Margarita, whip out the guitar, I start playing Margaritaville. And uh, no one cares about the chords, they care about the lyrics. way you sing it. Yeah. Well, then you just get them to sing it. It's bringing them in. I do. Like, I do. I do. Hey guys, I'm going to play, I'm going to jam and you will sing. Nobody oh, ever know. knows the words. No, but I was saying Jacqueline's husband, he plays guitar and he's a Broadway singer. So that might be, oh. you know. So if you need voice lessons, I'll just call in on the Zoom. I need voice Zoom. lessons. I, during my four-week vacation, I actually may be taking some. I'm, I'm trying to figure out the time. Which is why I live in New Jersey. When people ask me, why are you from California you live in New Jersey? Because my husband has to work on Broadway. <laughs> so. yeah, he has to. Oh, yeah. What a shame. He has to. I mean, amazing. It's amazing. It's just cold. All right. And you can tell I'm California because I'm freezing. Okay. So what was the last show you binge watched? Do you watch TV? Yes, I do. Rarely. Uh, the last I binge watched was, oh my God, that show about me- Breaking Bad. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. That oh. was amazing. Yes. Mm-hmm. I felt conflicted. I didn't know if he should be rooting for him. Or oh, not. yes, right. That's all, right, right. You hate him and you love him at the same <laughs> yes, time. Yes, yes. That's how um, it is with Ozark. You'd probably like that. Ozark, you should jump Oh, in I got to watch. Yeah, I haven't binge watched in about a year or two, but that-, that You have four weeks. You can, you you can do nothing but binge watch. <laughs> what was that? Do nothing but binge watch shows your on your vacation. Yeah, the, the next four weeks, yeah, I'll come back. I'll be like this. I'm barely even able to walk, but I'll see it in Ozark. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so what should your business card actually say? With the um, title of your business card. Yeah. Was it actually, I don't have a business now. card. Yeah. If I had a business card, I'll tell you one thing. It, it does not, they never had, and it never will have a title. I hate titles. I'm not the president or the CEO. I have to serve that capacity at times, but I am just as much uh, equal to my colleagues here as they are to mm-hmm. me. So, uh, you know, I, I would actually think I put this, I put a phrase on there. Uh, let's look over to each other. And what I mean by this is, as my book popularity has grown, some people occasionally say, Mike, I really look up to you. And I hate that. Not, I am flattered, but I don't like it because that means that they feel inferior to me. And that means I'm doing something wrong. I don't want people looking down at me either. I think we're all just on this big kind of life cycle and we're just at different spots. And since it's a big circle of life, we should never look up or down at each other. We should simply look over to each other. We're all the same. So that's what it was saying. The round table. King Arthur's round table, right? King Arthur's round table, yeah. (laughs) 
And then, okay, then the next question is, do you have an alter ego or a stage persona? So like Beyonce has her Sasha Fierce. Do you have anything that you need to? I do. It's the performer. So when I go onto stage, um, I learned this from this guy, Todd Herman, uh, who's a friend of mine now. And he's, he's coming out with a new book that is going to be a must buy next year about alter ego. And he shared a story that blew me away. Martin Luther King uh, never needed glasses, but Martin Luther King, whenever he spoke, would always put glasses on because that brought about the sense of intelligence and confidence. And he felt it too. For me, I, my outfit or gig is I wear a vest. You know, I always wear a vest. And when I put that on, I, I no longer Mike McCallowitz. I am now the performer. I don't believe public speaking is speaking. It's a one person show. It's a Broadway. <laughs> there you go. It's a theatrical event. That's my job to be the performer. Mm. I love that. Um, that's interesting. It's like when you're a podcaster and you put the headphones on and you become Mina, the podcaster or whatever. Right. You know? Right. But you have to, yeah, I think we have to feel that energy. Like, like, it's like uh, we're someone different now. And, and, it, mm-hmm. and it's a short lived thing. I think the mistake I was making originally saying, oh, I am the performer or whatever all the time. And that's not true. It's just in these moments where we're putting ourselves out there as a podcast or doing that sales call or whatever it is that then we have to feel this energy and say, okay, for the next 10 minutes or two hours, this is now who I am. Yes. I love that. Okay. So last question. Uh, we've often heard that entrepreneur years are like dog years. So, you know, seven years, it's like yeah, so super years. fast. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what would you tell baby Mike Mikowitz now that you are him now, what would you tell the baby version of yourself of entrepreneur? First, I think you're so cute. <laughs> <laughs> the baby entrepreneurial version. Yeah, I, I would. Uh, so my addiction to babies is I love baby ears because the cartilage is so soft. It is uh-huh. just like it's and like fuzzy. a sponge. It's so cute. Yeah. So I would I would definitely like play with my ears and pinch myself. <laughs> then I'd say. I think I'd just say like the the dark periods are going to be some of your best periods ever because uh, I would have never believed that. Never. I thought the dark, I thought that it was all about success. It's actually the failure that I'm going to grow the most from and that, that, that's the most valuable. And you yes. know what? And I, and I would have told myself that and I'd be looking at myself and I still call bullshit on myself. I'm like, <laughs> I don't think I would believe it. And I wonder even now, as I say that, if I believe it, if I really, I do really believe it, but I wonder if I, when I go into my next dark period, and it happens for all of us, it's cyclical. When that comes, will I really believe this is the best time of my life? Yeah, I think that if you picture it as like your success, your failure is part of your success, then you just have to get through the failure to get to the success. Yeah, yeah. You know, they're conjoined twins. <laughs> they're conjoined twins. Yeah. Okay, Mike. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. We loved having you. And can you tell our listeners how they can connect with you, find you, and buy all the books? Yeah, yeah. Go on a shopping spree at Amazon (laughs) for all. But uh, you can go to mikemichalowitz.com. That listen, it's long, it's Polish. No one spells it correctly. I don't. Uh, There's a shortcut. It's mikemotorbike.com. That was my nickname in high school. (laughs) The irony is, I've never driven a motorcycle, and I never plan to, but. Uh, go to mikemotorbike.com, all my books. I used to write for the Wall Street Journal. I'm a podcaster. It's all there. Okay, Amazing. perfect. And we'll put it in our show. My dad's American name is Mike, and we all of our emails that we set up for my dad are Mike Bud Beer. <laughs> oh, I love it. Because <laughs> he loves Budweiser, made up by his daughters. <laughs> Bud Beer. He's a boozer. I love it. <laughs> 
All right, Mike, thanks for this and um, enjoy your vacation. And hopefully we'll be able to hear how that goes in the, you know, after those four weeks. Let's do it again. Mina, Jacqueline, thank you both. Thank you. Hey there, still here? We want to invite you to our 2019 Mastermind, which starts in January. We've opened it up to three groups now to better serve our masterminders in startup, five-figure, and six-figure and above. We would love to have you in there to help transform your business into the product business of your dreams. Join other amazing product entrepreneurs for support, shortcuts, and real connection. Go to www.theproductboss.com mastermind for more information and to save your spot.